Now to the sermon. The sermon title is called True Greatness. True Greatness. Who is the goat? Right? What's the goat? The greatest of all time. I'm sure you heard of it. Perhaps you've had debates with your friends about who'd you pick, Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan? All right? Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? You may be offended because I didn't even mention your favorite player out of those two, correct? You may be wondering, who is the king of rock, the king of pop? You, would, you should probably know that. I was talking to my brother yesterday, and I was like, who is the king of hip-hop? I mean, who's that? Right? So we Googled that and to see who that might be. I don't know. We have like top 10 wealthiest men in the world or women in the world. We have the top 10 most influential people of all time. And we love to do this, don't we? We love to rate and rank ourselves. And don't we train our people to do their best? We understand this. We don't teach our people to be last. We want to teach, teach our people to be the best they can be. And perhaps maybe they may be the best on the planet on, being, on doing it. And as parents, we kind of understand this, right? And, um, but oftentimes, worldly greatness is rooted in pride. Pride. And this is about me, not about God. The pride of being first, the pride of being the best, the pride of being recognized. This is a critical thing for us to understand. So as leaders of our church, leaders of our homes, leaders of our groups, our teams, you might be a coach like I was at one time in driving and motivating our people to be great. So my question is this, church. Is it okay to desire greatness? Is that okay? Is that a right desire to have as a Christian man or woman? This is important because the Lord is going to give us a lesson today and he's going to teach us what true greatness is all about. And this takes us to Mark chapter 9, 30 to 41. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, please turn to Mark 9, 30 to 41. I'll be reading and preaching out of the Legacy Standard Bible. And a little bit of context as you're turning there. The nine last week could not cast out the demon. This demon was too great for the nine who were left behind as three disciples, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus Christ, were, were headed down from the Mount Transfiguration. This was an exclusive uh, a, a group that Jesus handpicked to come with them. So there were nine disciples that were left, and they couldn't cast out this demon. Today, Jesus is going to teach the disciples what true greatness is all about. So if you're, if you're able to, please rise. I'll read for us Mark 9, 30 to 41. Mark 9, 30 to 41. God's word says this. From there, they went out and went, were going through Galilee. And he was not wanting anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. But they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. And, when, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
And taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Verse 41, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Let's pray briefly. Father, thank you for your holy and perfect word. Your word is the light that shows us who you are. So Father, show us your glory. Show us more of your glory through your precious son. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Let's get to the first point. We have three points, but let's get to the first point today. To understand true greatness, we must look at the humility of the Savior. We have to understand the humility of the Savior. Verse 30, the Lord is, has worked his way down and the, he casts out that demon out of that boy. Now it's time to head south from north to south back to the Sea of Galilee. All right, and this is where he's planning to make his visit to, to Galilee where he spent most of his time in ministry of the three years. And he didn't want anyone to know about it. This was a private lesson. Jesus is training in discipling the 12 to take over. He was training them to take the baton. The Lord knows that he's about to die. As he works his way south from, from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's a death march. The Lord is headed to the cross and he keeps telling the disciples, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed, but I'll rise again on the third day. And he's handing the baton over to the 12 because they need to take, take over. This is their leg of the race that they need to take the baton and run. But they also need to understand what it requires to be in ministry. And he's going to teach them that humility is an essential ingredient for ministry. Verse 31, the Lord says this, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Hand over, this, this word delivered literally means handed over. And it has a connotation of as if you hand over a criminal to be taken into custody. And who handed Jesus over to be killed? We, we need to know this. We need to be very clear. Who handed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Holy One, over to the authorities to be treated like a criminal and to be killed? Well, certainly Judas, one of the false disciples, one of the 12, handed Jesus over to the Jewish leaders. Certainly the Jewish leaders tried him and handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor that represented the Roman Empire in Palestine. Certainly Pontius Pilate sentenced him to death and handed him over to the soldiers to be killed and to be nailed to the cross. But Acts 2.23 says it was the Father. God himself was the one who was the one who actually handed Jesus Christ, his own son, to be handed over to be killed. Acts 2.23, uh, Peter preaches, this man, talking about Christ, delivered by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. 
was handed over to godless men to be killed. Yes, human agents were used in the process, but ultimately, this was God's sovereign plan to save us. And we need to understand how humble our Lord is. Jesus humbly submitted to the Father's plan. If you want to learn more about greatness, we have to start here with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the standard of greatness because he is a standard of humility. Philippians 2 was read by Takeshi, Brother Takeshi, and Takeshi read this. This is the hallmark portion of God's greatness. This describes the humility of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 talks about how he, God, Jesus Christ, existed in the form of God. That means that if you're wondering who Jesus is, guess, if you're here as a guest, invite a guest of a friend of our church, we're here to talk about Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is God himself. Jesus has eternally been God. Jesus was never created. He is the creator of all things. He existed in the form of God. Philippians 2 will go on to say he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning although he being God himself, the creator of all things, he didn't demand his rights to be treated as such. He didn't demand his rights, his privileges, his honors, his status of being God, if you could even imagine that. Philippians 2 goes on to say that he emptied himself and became a slave. What does it mean to empty himself? That means he willingly laid aside, okay, I'm going to put some of my divine glory aside. What does that mean? He took, set aside his heavenly glory, his heavenly worship that he was receiving. The angels were worshiping him constantly. Holy, holy, holy are you. He's being sung to constantly. He's being worshiped and adored constantly. He set that aside. He set aside his eternal riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, he who was rich became poor so that you and I could become rich. And he became a slave of God. He became a slave to his father. because, like, Father, I will do what you want. Not my will, but your will be done. To serve us, his created beings who have who sinned against him. That's humility. The creator serving the creator. That's humility. We can't even comprehend how low that is, how high that is and how low he went. How rich he is and how poor he became to serve you and me, his created ones who sinned against him. Philippians 2 goes on to say he was, Jesus was made in the likeness of men. That, that's the word incarnated. He took on humanity. That means that he took on human flesh, with the limitations of human flesh. For the first time on earth, he experienced what it felt like to be hungry or to be tired, to be weary. He took on human emotions. He understood what, understands what sadness feels like, what betrayal feels like. He took this on. He never felt this before. He humbled himself to be obedient this is the key. Philippians is actually an exhortation for us to be humble and to be unified, but Paul uses Christ as the ultimate example. You see, Jesus Christ is the definition of greatness. Jesus Christ is the standard of humility. He humbled himself to the Father's plan and humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, the Bible says. 
I mean, on the cross, what does that mean? It's hard for us to even fathom what that means because people aren't crucified or killed on the cross. 2,000 years ago, the cross was the worst way of dying, the most humiliating way of dying, the most excruciating way of dying, reserved only for the worst criminals. So when the Bible says handed over, when, he's, when Jesus predicts, I will be handed over, the Son of Man will be handed over, I'll be handed over like a common criminal. Not only a common criminal, but the worst of the criminals to die on the cross. This is where he took on the wrath of God, his own Father, and took on the punishment that you and I deserve, Christians. Clearly, Jesus is the standard of greatness. I mean, it doesn't start and end there. I mean, we have to understand and go deeper into what it means to be humble. I mean, he sets the bar for everyone. So to be great, let's be very clear. How does, it define, how does the Bible define greatness? To be clear, greatness is defined by humility. To be great means to be humble, to be humble. In verse 31, back to Mark, it says this. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. Acts 2 goes on to say that God will raise him from the dead. He will defeat sin and death for you and me to prove that he is God and who he said he was to be. You see, guess this is the message. This is the core message of Christianity that we're sinners and God himself loved the world and he sent his one and only son to die for us. So if you're not a Christian, you're kind of perhaps exploring this right now, don't leave today without understanding this. I'm not saying you're going to believe, but at least, at least intellectually understand that God himself died for sinners. He took on the wrath of God. He died and rose again and three days on the third day he rose again and he's coming back. And if you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, yes, I believe you did this for me, and yes, I trust my life, I trust you as my Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. This is the core message of Christianity. This is what this is all about. And it took the humility of God to pull this off. Not one of us has that level of humility to die for people that have treated us this way, die for the created because none of us could even fathom what it's like to, to humble ourselves to this level. But Mark 9, 32 says that the disciples didn't get it. They could not get it. I mean, Luke 9 says that they were, they were not allowed. It was concealed from them. It wasn't time yet for the 12 to fully understand what the Lord was needed to go through. So the master teacher goes to work. I mean, his whole plan, the Lord's plan as he's journeying down, is to prepare the 12 to take over. Take that baton and start running now. So he masterfully asks, does, uh, asks a question. Parents, perhaps you've done this, right? What are you guys talking about back there? Right? Instead of coming out and accusing the, the 12, he just, what were you guys talking about back there? I mean, of course he knew what they were talking about. He's God. Yet he goes, what are you guys talking about back there? And then what does it say in verse 34? They kept silent. Crickets. No one, even Peter didn't have anything to say at this point, right? Why were they silent? They were caught dead in their tracks. They're dead, caught dead in the track. They're caught. They're caught, absolutely caught, and they're completely embarrassed. Instead of focusing on the Lord's death, they're talking about who is the greatest, who's the goat amongst us, who is the greatest disciple of us. I mean, this is what they're talking about. 
Verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Let's rank each other. Let's see who's going to be first in, in the kingdom of God. Let, let's see who's going to sit at, at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Let's see who's going to be number two in command. Perhaps this goes back to the Mount Transfiguration. I mean, how would you feel if you're the nine that are left behind and three got to go up? Or how would you feel if you're the three that got to go up to see Jesus glowing like the sun and then knowing that other nine were left behind? Perhaps the nine were saying, why did you three get to go? Peter, James, and John were the three that got to go. Perhaps they're wondering, why did we get left behind? Did we do something wrong? And perhaps the three did not respond as graciously as they should. Perhaps they said, well, obviously you couldn't cast out that demon. <laughs> if we're here, we could have handled that, okay? Obviously the Lord needed to help you cast out that demon. We're going to help rule Jesus. It's obvious why we went up there and you didn't. We're the three that are closest to him. As a matter of fact, you're going to be working under my department someday, so get used to it, right? I mean, perhaps something like that was taking place, you know, and, and, and it's easy to shoot at the disciples, right? But why were they acting this way? Well, let's go back in time a little bit. Go back. To understand the Bible, you always want to get in your time machine and go back to that day and era. What was the world like back then? Well, the Jewish world was an honor and shame culture. I mean, those with status, you're on top. That's just how it worked. Those who received honor, you're on top. Those who, who are in authority, you are on top. And everybody else was below. I mean, just like the Pharisees, they love the respectful greetings. Rabbi, you're the respected rabbi. Even they rank the type of rabbis that they had. The Pharisees love to be seated in the place of honor, right, at banquets and other things. We got to sit right there. Some would even sound the trumpet as they gave in the temple. I mean, it's all about honor. It's all about honor. Pride fueled the hearts. I mean, in some ways, we got to be careful of this, don't we, church? Many of us come from an honor-shame culture, right? I mean, we desire to be respected. I understand that. This is, I, I think I repent to my own family of this off, most often, this desire to be respected from the family, we understand this. What drives you? I mean, and, and think about it. If you're the nine, would you have been offended? Have you been offended when you haven't been asked to be part of certain ministries or asked to come out to a certain celebration with friends or anything like that? Has, you haven't been invited to certain special events. Does that offend you? Does that prick your heart? Right? So I, th I think we can understand how the disciples may have felt. I mean, we've been praying for elders, have we not? We've been praying for elders to care for the local church here, and elders are not elders who serve because they got a title. That's not how this works. It's not some kind of honor, honorific thing and I get to serve. Elders are already doing it right now with or without a title, right? Pastors have been pastoring with or without a, a job, vocational title. So this is kind of how this works. We need to be guarded over our hearts I mean, it's easy to see why they got upset back then, but we need to be aware for our own selves. So Jesus Christ is a standard of greatness. He is the humble 
Savior. It starts with knowing who he is. Let's go to the second point. To understand true greatness, we must look at the humility of service. That's your fill-in-the-blank, service. Verse 35, Jesus says this, and sitting down, he called the 12. Come over here. I'm sitting down. Let's sit down. And said to them, if anyone wants to be first, and if anyone wants to be great, the goat, the greatest of all time, he shall be last of all and servant of all. What? This is another paradox. I mean, the Lord teaches us in upside down thinking. This is how heaven's economy works. Chapter 8, it's similar to what he said in chapter 8, just like you must die to live. That's a paradox. I mean, aren't they opposites, Lord? But being great means you being your last. Being great means that you're a humble servant of others. This is what this means. It means that you put the needs of others before your own. Philippians 2, Takeshi read, do nothing from, from selfish ambition or vainglory. That's what the disciples are running off of. This is, what you're, this is the type of fuel that you're running off, dirty fuel, I like to call it. If you're motivated by, by self, selfish ambition or vainglory, if you run by honor and shame, it's called you're running off dirty fuel there. And there's going to be residue when you burn that off. But this is clean fuel, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Paul got it. Paul saying you need to be humble, just like Christ, the ultimate example out of Philippians 2. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Be humble. Be humble. This is what it means to be great. Even Paul is saying this. And how far does this go? I mean, the Lord is a master teacher and he brings out an object lesson or illustration for the 12, verse 36. And taking a child, he set him before them, the 12. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, the 12, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Meaning, you receive this little child, you receive God himself who sent me. How far does this go? How far does your humility need to go? How far does it, does, does, is our Lord telling us, calling us to serve? Well, this child serves as an, a, a clear object lesson that the disciples understood. In our circles, uh, we may have a high view of children. Praise God. I mean, some families are committed to homeschooling. Praise God. Some families are committed to uh, making sure we do uh, family devotions. Praise God. That's, these are all right and good things. Some of us send our kids to public school, private school. Praise God. You are discipling your children the way you think is best. I mean, they consume a lot of our focus, and rightfully so. I mean, even academically, you may make sure that they have the right tutors, athletically the right coaches, the right strength coaches. Make sure they are placed in the right schools. We get all that. We get all that. But we need to go back in time. What were children like in the Greco-Roman world when Jesus is saying this? This is where the pendulum swings the other way. If it's one way this way for many of us, it was certainly the other way in the Greco-Roman culture. I mean, children were seen as the least. Children were a nuisance. Children were another expense. Children didn't even count as humans. Children had no power, no accomplishments, no way to contribute to society. 
And the illustration of this is in the Greco-Roman world, it was common for parents who didn't want their children, particularly girls, to leave them someplace so that hopefully somebody comes and adopts them. If they left their children outside the cities, the intent was for the children to die on their own. And perhaps that's how you know, that's your experience as sons and daughters, right? Perhaps that's where you treat it. I'm not saying everyone's had a rich experience as children, but perhaps that was your experience too, where you weren't exactly wanted. So the children represent those with the greatest need in the church, those who are, can easily be forgotten, those who can be unseen. These children are those who are not able to return the favor to you if you were to serve them. And I believe this is talking specifically about Christians because Matthew 18 says you need to have childlike faith to enter the kingdom of heaven. Certainly it's good to care for all peoples, but I believe this is the least of these in the church. I'm grateful. I mean, as a pastor, it just encourages me to see men and women serving, even youth serving diligently in our church. You know, I mean, I'm so grateful for some sisters and some brothers who are serving in the special needs ministry for years to get the room back there, right by the guard shack right there faithfully serving, faithfully loving. I'm so grateful for those who are fighting for the unborn child, fighting for the least of these who can't even speak. I'm so grateful for those who have been serving for many years in the children's ministry, loving on children. And these children will be adults someday, God willing, they're walking and loving with Christ. But I could tell you as an older man now, I don't forget these type of people. <laughs> you don't forget these people. You know who these people who have been pouring into your life as a, as a child, whether it's your parent or a coach or even a Sunday school teacher. People who have been visiting elderly widows who, who can't even get out of their homes. That's incredible. That's, that's, that is an encouragement for a pastor. I mean, these are private ministries that, not like preaching, it's not like leading music. I, these are very important functions that we serve. But these are private ministries that God sees, that God sees and are very emblematic, emblematic of what he's talking about right here, the least of these in some ways. I remember a story as I was preparing for the sermon that just gripped my heart where I was challenged. I remember in coaching, I loved mentoring players, mentoring coaches, and I'd had some very intimate relationships with these men. Some people, I am able to walk them through the, 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 the role of coaching, teach them along the way. Even some, I got to even evangelize the disciple as Christian brothers. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, those are some great things. But I remember one meeting behind closed doors, one man said to me, you've done nothing for me. What? That rocked my world now. I was like, what? I thought I was loving. I thought I was committed to you. I thought, what's going on here? You've done nothing for me. You've done nothing for me. Have you been there before where you're serving and there's no thanks? Have you been there before? You're serving, the effect isn't working. You're serving and you hear people critical of you, 
What? I thought I was just helping. I remember the statement that I heard during that time up in Seattle, and I was like, I thought I was a humble servant. Well, evidently not. I mean, things were, I was bothered now. I was like, Shoot, I'm going to counsel that guy out of my mind. I remember, I don't know if it was a sermon or somebody told me this. He said, you find out the type of servant you are when you're treated like one. Right? How humble are you, right, when you're treated like a servant? His point was, it's easier, I'll say easier to serve when they say, man, thank you so much. That's wonderful. You're the greatest. This is awesome. We're, we're so grateful to God that you're here. It's easier to serve like that, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Amen? I mean, that's it. But you find out the type of servant you are when you're treated like one. When, how humble are you? Do you get upset when no one says thank you? It's normal. Do you get upset when no one acknowledges your efforts? It's normal. Do you get weary when people expect things from you? That's normal if you do. I find myself most discouraged, brothers and sisters, when I have unmet expectations. Man, I'm doing this and this is what I think is coming in return. Not necessarily maybe a financial thing, but some kind of a encouragement perhaps, right? The Lord never promises to encourage us when we serve. It wasn't encouraging for the Lord to say, I'm going to die and the disciples think about who is the greatest. That's not very encouraging. I'll just add that much. Sherman Smith, one of my coaching brothers and his brother in the Lord, says this, and this is perhaps he shared this with me during that time. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. I'm a loser. I'm nobody. I don't count. That's not it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less, meaning you're less focused on yourself, putting the needs of others above your own, as Philippians talks about. Amen. You find out the type of servant you are when you're treated like one. And the Lord has a good plan through it, that if you are being uh, uh, not very much appreciated, in some ways it sounds like the, the role of the mom, right? Moms are saying yes, right? I mean, this is how it works. This is how this works. The Lord is sanctifying you through this, and it's an amazing thing. Finally, let's get to our third and final point. To understand true greatness, we must Look at the humility of solidarity, the humility of solidarity to be united, in other words. It takes humility to be united, to be solid, to be one. Verse 38, John is pricked to the heart, the apostle John. The apostle John and, and, and James, his brother, the sons of thunder. Shall we rain down fire, Lord, on these people because they don't accept you, right? This is that John who later on becomes the apostle of love. So obviously there's some kind of transformation with that brother, but John's conscience is pricked and a memory is brought to mind. He says, John said to him, Jesus, teacher, verse 38, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. In your name they're casting out demons. And we tried to hinder him. Stop, 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 stop. That's not your role. Stop, 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 stop. We tried to discourage him. Why, John? Because he was not following us. 
In other words, he wasn't part of our group. He wasn't saying it the way that we say it. He wasn't doing it the way that we do it. And we try to hinder him. We we try to stop him. See, pride leads us to being exclusive, as if we're the only ones that could do it, as if we're the only ones that get it, as if we're the only ones who who are being called to do something for the Lord. As if we're irreplaceable. I mean, that's the worst thing you could think about yourself, that you're irreplaceable. There's plenty of people who could pastor here. There's plenty of people who could have coached where I was coaching. No one's the irreplaceable factor. Okay, and so John was asking this question. He was pricked, like, what? And the Lord, verse 39, said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Philippians 2 says this, it requires humility to be united. It requires humility to to be united in the local church. It takes humility to be united in the marriage. It takes humility to be united on a team with other Christians as well outside the local church. I'm so grateful for our church. We, we have a humble group here. It's been challenging. We've been through many adjustments and phases, but there's a lot of humility exercised here. It's encouraging. Pride is the enemy to unity. It has to be this way. It has to be this way. This is how we've always done it, right? This is how you're supposed to say it. This is how you're supposed to dress. This is what it is. And Philippians 2 talks about selfish ambition and vainglory, right? This prevents solidarity. Selfishness and vainglory prevents solidarity. Dr. Steve Lawson, our head of our doctoral pro, uh, 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 program at the Master Seminary, gets in front of us and warns us. He says, hey, we could be arrogant here at the Master Seminary now. And we believe we know the truth. We believe we know how to study the Bible. We believe we, we in, in the convictions that we have in ministry. You could be arrogant now. We're not trying to produce more arrogant men to be out there and to represent the Lord in an arrogant way. We could be arrogant towards those who know less about the truth. We could be arrogant about thinking that we, are the, we own the market on truth. He goes on to encourage us, hey, gentlemen, the truth should grow our love for Christ and for others. The more you know about God as a regenerate man, you should grow in your love for him and for others. The more you know about truth, the more you should cultivate a a posture of humility. Like, why do I get to learn all this? Wow, is this amazing. And this is a good word for all of us at Evergreen, and the Lord has been moving at and working at Evergreen Baptist Church. I mean, we have been growing in the word. Without question, the Lord is growing our, the ministry of the word in exposition and, and also in the adult classes. We're learning more about doctrine. We are becoming more and more doctrinally distinct. We are learning more about the glories of God. These are all great things. We're learning more about the theology of the local church. How should the lo- local church be cared for? It's mean, amazing. It's amazing. The Bible says that knowledge or head knowledge puffs up. If it's just information, it's going to make you arrogant. There's knowledge that you learn intellectually, and it it needs to be intellectual. It needs to be understandable. It needs to travel down into the heart and somehow give us a greater 
clarity on who Christ is. It should, this head knowledge should become heart knowledge that grows our love and humility for one another. This is what the mark of true spirituality is. You know more, but you love more. You know more, therefore you are more humble towards one another. You care about each other's spiritual well-being more. This is the mark of true spirituality. And in verse 41, to finish up this portion, portion is if whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So in one end of this uh, portion, John is saying, we try to stop him. In the other end of the portion, Jesus is saying, support those who are ministering in my name, right? Giving a cup of water is like support, encouragement, right? It's a hospitality. It's perhaps financial support or perhaps partnering in ministry. Perhaps it's praying for people as we did for Lighthouse Church right now through Pastor Ron. And, and this is what unity not only requires humility, but unity also requires discernment. Discernment. This is a critical aspect for our church to have, a discernment. I mean, there's two extremes to avoid. One end of the pendulum is tribalism, where we are prideful. We believe that we know more than everybody else, and we become arrogant. We become spiritually snobby, and then we become very territorial. Territorial. That's one end. Tribalism. The pendulum can swing the other end, and we become fall into the, the pitfall of universalism, where we think we're being humble and say, you know what? They kind of mentioned God. We're all in the same family. It's all good. Truth doesn't matter that much as long as they say they believe in God. Where there's no boundaries even. There's two ends of the spectrum we need to avoid. So what is a nice sweet spot? The Lord provides some guidelines here. Look at verse 39 here. Out of the Bible here, he says, Do not hinder him for, for there is no one who will perform miracles in my name. See that? I've said that and kind of inflected that. Perhaps you caught it in my name. Jesus' name is referred to four times in this portion. Verse 37, whoever receives a child in my name. Verse 38, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, meaning Jesus' name. Verse 39, I just read that. Verse 41, whoever uh, uh, gives you a cup of water to drink in my name. In other words, are they on Jesus' team? That's the first and foremost, most important question. Jesus recognized this man casting out demons as, no, he's doing it for me. He's one of mine, in my name. What does it mean to be, in G to be doing things in Jesus' name? It means that you're in alignment with him. You're in alignment with him. And, and how do you know that you're in alignment? Er earlier on, verse 39, he says, there is no one who will be able to perform a miracle in my name and be able soon after to speak evil of me. How do they speak about Christ? Are they saying true things? Right? Do they have right doctrine on who Jesus Christ is? Or Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses perhaps believe they're doing things in Jesus' name. But they speak evil of him. They speak blasphemous lies about him that he is not God. That's a problem. That's a problem. So how do we discern, right? So we want to avoid those uh, bad extremes. How do we discern how to partner with people? Which missionaries and ministries to support? How do we discern if this is the church for me and my family, right? These, these are important. How do I engage with the coworker at the office? 
Well, I think Al Mohler, uh, president of Southern Seminary, has a, has a wonderful illustration. He calls it theological triage. Triage. And that for those of us who don't know what triage means, I mean, it's what happens in the emergency room where there's ur- levels of urgency depending on the type of cases that you see. If someone has a broken ankle, that's one level, but another one has a gunshot wound to the chest, that's another level. And if someone's having a heart attack, that's one level of urgency, whereas someone has a headache, that may be a different level of urgency, right? So there's different levels of urgency, different levels. And so in the Christian world, every truth is important, amen? However, every, some truths are more critical than others to believe in. This is important, it's theological triage to maintain unity. Let's talk about the first order, the first order of urgency for a Christian man and woman to consider. This first order is orthodoxy, meaning the most fundamental truth to Christianity, meaning if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. They're not working in Jesus' name. They're working in somebody else's name, a false version of Jesus. What examples of these would, would be part of the first order? The Trinity, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we believe three in one. The divinity and humanity of Christ, we believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man. If you believe he's a created God, then you just left the reservation there. You're you're speaking in somebody else's name. Justification, the gospel, justification through faith alone, by believing in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior not believing in Jesus plus adding a bunch of sacraments or needing to be baptized. You just left the reservation there. The Bible, the Bible is God's inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word. In order to hear from God, the Bible is the only reliable source of information. J.C. Ryles, a, a bishop from England, said, to keep Gospel truth in the church is even of greater importance than to keep peace. To keep gospel truth in the church is even of greater importance than to keep peace or unity. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity, meaning you're just getting along over a ministry or some kind of ethnic uh, uh, agreement or some kind of a, a moral standard or moral code. I mean, there's no gospel. It's just like being part of the YMCA, in other words, or being some kind of a alumni association. That's what it means. And he goes on to say, it is the very unity of hell. I mean, if we jettison any, those truths to maintain unity, we just lost ourselves as a church. That's what the Satan would want. Second order of theological triage is this. This is necessary for fellowship or necessary for us to be part of the same local church. These are truths that dictate not your salvation necessarily, but dictate how we lead our churches, how we care for our churches, how we disciple one another. Because this could be a conflicting thing. I mean, things such as baptism, Some brothers and sisters believe in infant baptism. Our Presbyterian brothers believe this. We don't believe this. We're Baptists. We believe in believers' baptism, what the Bible says about baptism. That could be a problem, right? Being part of the same church. No, I want infant baptism. I want to do believers' baptism. That's a problem. Headship issues, right? Should elders be only men according to what the Bible says, or should it be men and women? 
Should the home be uh, led by men? Or women? I mean, that's, that's, that would cause tension in the local church. So you can see what a second order of triage, these dictate how we would do life as a church and as a, as a, as a family. Third order now. This is moving away, like think of a concentric circle, moving away from the core here. We may disagree on some of these things and still be in tight fellowship with one another at the local church. Right? We could be members of the same local church and even have disagreements over this. For example, the end times. You need to believe that Jesus is coming back, right? Amen? He is coming back. But the timing, the sequence, that might be different for some of us. This has been a much debated thing amongst dear, dear brothers and sisters over the centuries. But Jesus is coming back. That's one thing is undebatable. And there's various difficult texts that, certain prophecies, certain things that may be difficult to discern properly and have one thought on it. So these are things that would not deter fellowship in the local church. But I want to take it to your own level now. I, I, I talked about it at the church level, which is good. We need to understand that. But well, let's take it to your street and to your block and to your cubicle at office or even your classmates or your locker room, okay? Let's take it to that level. How do I use all this to discern who I partner with? Let me give you um, a thought here. There was a time when I was coaching, right? And so during that time, whether at the University of Southern California or at the Seattle Seahawks, I was happy if someone was a genuine believer. Like, okay, I believe in God. Okay, let's understand. But I, oh, yeah, you believe in the gospel? Oh, praise God. You go to this church? Oh, okay. But, hey, you love God. Let's pray together. Let's, let's hang out together. I'll pray for you. Uh, you know, what a wonderful thing. If you have a guy or gal that's a brother in your industry or your school, particularly if you're at a public, public school or public university, you, be happy and rejoice. Be happy and rejoice. Be happy and rejoice. But I remember earlier on in Seattle, I was fellowshipping with a brother. We were part of Bible study. And one day he said, you know, you need to speak in tongues to be a regenerate person. I'm like, what? I never spoke in a tongue. Okay. That's there, I, could saw, I saw where there's issues there, right? I mean, okay. I still loved on him. I definitely agree. I don't know if he understood me as a brother, but I, I want to embrace him still. But now that I'm in the church, how do I help our churchmen discern, do I support that missionary? Do I support that organization? Do I attend this fellowship? Right? Do I partner up with that other local church? I would just, once you pass orthodoxy, meaning level one, it takes a lot of discernment now on level two and three because I will ask this one question. You only got one life to live, brothers and sisters. You have only a certain amount of time. You have only a certain amount of talents to give. You have a certain amount of money to give. With all that in mind, now Christ is coming back and he will hold us accountable for how we stewarded what we had. My question to you will be this, or if you ever met up with me, what would be most strategic what will be most strategic to fulfill the Great Commission while you're on, this, on God's green earth? To help evangelize and edify other uh, people of this world. What will be most strategic? Think through that. If you bypass triage number one, that's being unfaithful. You, you're wasting your time. 
if you're thinking you're doing Christian ministry, I mean, certainly you could get involved in other things. Now, I'm not saying that, but if you're thinking I'm fulfilling the Great Commission by, by investing certainly in some ways, certainly maybe you could be a Trojan horse and helping out and maybe that's your plan. So if that's what your thought is, understood. I know that every situation is a little bit different, but you have to understand in order to partner with Christian ministries, they have to be Christian. And then level two and three, ask yourselves, what will be the most strategic and how I spend my time and my energy? Let's finish up here. Is it okay to desire greatness? Answer is absolutely yes. You should desire greatness, but as we're seeing, we have to understand what true greatness is, being humble. Be humble because the greatest of all time was humble. It begins with knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Have you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know Christ as the humble Savior? Jesus says to me, says to all, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Come to Jesus and you'll find rest for your souls. Come to Jesus today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that you did it all. We thank you for your humble obedience which allowed us to be adopted sons and daughters of the king. Lord, help us. thank you that we get to be part of something much grander, much bigger than ourselves. So Father God, I pray, Lord, for humility, knowing that it is only by your grace, only by your humble act of service and obedience to the Father that we can be part of this much bigger family, much bigger kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be humble to serve one another. We would care about each other's spiritual well-being. We would care to encourage other gospel workers around us, even if they're not part of our local church. I pray that we would be humble to desire unity and solidarity with one another in the local church, but also beyond these walls, Lord. Other brothers and sisters, Lord. Father, I pray that we will continue to pray for other local churches in the San Gabriel Valley and then throughout the world. I pray that we will pray for other missionaries and other uh, workers around the world. Thank you, Father, for this great opportunity to look into your son, the greatest of all, and to see his humility. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.